You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, Halloween was uh, last week, and uh, my, my kids crushed it. It's not hard in the city, though, right? I mean, it's like fishing in a, like fishing a barrel, just shooting a shotgun in there. Like, there's so many houses. We had so many bags of candy, and the dad tax was strong. Uh, dad, dad made out well this year. And uh, I don't know if you saw this, but Skittles actually did like a Halloween version of their candy. It was like in an orange little pack. And I think it was part of the, the, the shtick, right, of like, because I was eating some of these Skittles, and I tasted one, and it, it tasted like a sour Skittle. And I'm sitting there with Sherry at the table, and there's another member of our church there. And I'm like, taste this sour Skittle. And I grab the table. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is so sour. And my wife, of course, looks me in the eye, and she's like, really? It's that sour? Like, relax. And I'm like, I'm telling you, these Skittles are sour. And so I hand her, like, the pack, and she starts eating them. And there's, like, she's eating three at this point, and they are all the normal ones because they, they randomly put a few of the sour ones in the pack. And so she's looking at me like, you're such a wimp. And then finally, she eats one, and I see her, like, it hits her face. She's like, oh. And I'm like, yes, I told you it was sour. In your face. And the, re- the reason I share that weird random story is because she knew what was in the pack. She knew there were sour Skittles in the, in the Skittles pack, but it wasn't until she actually tasted it, she was like, wow, this is way more sour than I anticipated. And I think suffering hits us in a similar way. We know suffering is in the pack of life, but when it hits you, you grab the table and say, whoa, that's way harder than I realized. That breakup, that cancer diagnosis, this job situation, this residency, it's harder than I thought. And being American Christians, we are more unprepared for suffering than any other generation in the history of the world. Why? Because you don't have to suffer that much. At least you don't think you do. I mean, because when you're hungry, you go to Walmart. When you're sick, you go to one of the seven hospital options you got. When you're bored, you watch Netflix. We avoid suffering as American Christians better than anyone ever, I think. I think this is why there's a, there's a doctor named Dr. Paul Brand. He was a pioneering orthopedic surgeon who worked with lepers in India. He worked with American patients and Indian patients with like some of the worst debilitating illnesses in the world. And this is what he said, his analysis of both cultures. He said, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. And just being a pastor, I, I think I agree with him. Like, you, re, you hang out with Christians in America and Christians in, like, Ghana or Sri Lanka or Iran. The Christians in America, they get whipped by suffering. But the Christians in other nations tend to be able to handle it better. And I, I, I want to just gently speak to the people of, of our society, our culture, and help us be better equipped for the suffering that is coming. And I think you can do that by knowing two important truths. 
Here they are. Romans 8, 26-30 tells us, Christians have two helpers when we're in pain. We have the interceding Spirit of God, and we have the sovereign work of God. And I, I really, really believe that if you will know these truths, hold on to them, and cling to them when you are in pain, it will alleviate the trauma of suffering on your heart. Let's start with number one, the interceding Spirit of God. Verse 26, this is what Paul says. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You notice he starts his little section here with the, the term likewise. And what that is doing is it's connecting Romans 8, 26 to 30 with everything else he said earlier in chapter 8. He's basically like, in the same way what I'm about to say gives you hope, or he's essentially saying, in the same way what I just said gives you hope, let what I'm about to say give you hope. And what was the hope he shared earlier in chapter 8? He shared in chapter 1 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took all that condemnation for you. He said in verse 15 that you are no longer slaves, but you are received adoption as sons. And now you can cry, Abba, Father to God. You can basically call the God of the universe Dad now. He said in verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed when Jesus returns. I mean, those are some encouraging, massive truths in chapter 8. And he says, likewise, in the same way, all those things have just encouraged you, helped you. Let what I'm about to say blow your mind even more. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. I want you to notice the Spirit doesn't remove our weakness. He helps us in it. Maybe you feel weak this morning. If you're a Christian, you definitely should feel weak because being a Christian kind of the prerequisite is admitting your weakness and throwing yourself on Christ's mercy. The Spirit doesn't remove our weakness, helps us in it. And what is the weakness that Paul is referring to that he helps us with? This is uh, kind of the heart of the point here. Verse 26, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. That is our weakness. Maybe you feel this this morning. We are weak in prayer. We are weak in the mountain in which we pray. We are weak in that we don't know specifically what we should be praying for. And we are weak that we fail to pray what we should be praying for. And this is particularly true in suffering, isn't it? I don't know, maybe you feel this way, but you ever like have a friend come up to you and say, I just got uh, let go from my job. Like, you ever struggle with, what do I pray for this person? It's kind of an awkward situation. Or like, let me give you another example. Adam Flint, the guy who preached last Sunday, he was diagnosed with cancer. What do you say when a Christian comes up to you and says, I was diagnosed for, with cancer, will you pray for me? Like, what do you pray? Richard Pope, who was here a few months ago, he has a terminal cancer diagnosis. What do you pray for that guy? It's going to be kind of intimidating, right? Like, do I pray that God would heal you, but the doctors say you're going to die in a year? Or do, do I pray for faith and endurance that you'd be able to, to die well? I don't really know what to pray. You know, Paul felt the exact same when, when it came to prayer. In fact, he talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He's, he said that he was given a thorn in the flesh, basically something that annoyed him, that hurt him, a messenger of Satan to torment him. 
And he says in 2 Corinthians, I was actually praying for the wrong thing. I was praying that God would remove this pain out of my life, which a lot of scholars believe was blindness or malaria. We don't know exactly what it was. But really, God says I should have been praying that he would be glorified amidst my weakness. I was praying for the wrong thing. He wants to show his strength through my weakness. It can be tough to know what to pray for someone or even what to pray for yourself, can it? Like, you may be single this morning. Do I pray for contentment in my singleness or should I be praying for a man? I don't know which one to pray for. Maybe you're in a, uh, you're, uh, just moved to Baltimore City and you miss all your old friends. Do I pray that I get out of the city quickly? Or do I pray for more friends like I had in the last city? What do I pray for? We are weak in prayer, Paul says. Helpless. Middle verse 26, but. And man, the best buts are in the Bible, aren't they? But. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. I love that phrase, by the way. It doesn't say the Spirit intercedes. It says the Spirit himself intercedes. Like, the Spirit isn't sending an assistant. You know, I'll send my admin to help you out. He himself intercedes for us. That word intercedes is a present active verb, meaning he is presently and continuously stepping in to help you. At the beginning of the text, verse 26, Paul says the Spirit helps us. That word helps in the Greek means to bear a burden alongside with you. So the Spirit is carrying you. The image I kind of have here is you ever go to a basketball court with a little kid and like the three-year-old, like my son Jude I was holding earlier, is trying to throw a basketball hoop up to the, and he can't even hit the rim. Like this is a pointless exercise. Until I lift him up, I, I intercede, I help and bring him up to the hoop and suddenly he can barely drop the, the basketball through the bucket. He can't do it on his own, but I intercede and can. This, we can't pray well on our own, but the Spirit intercedes and helps us. And how, how does he intercede? If you notice the text says, with groanings too deep for words, which is a really weird verse. I remember reading this the first time. I'm like, what the heck is this saying? Maybe you read it and you're like, I have no idea what this means. Well, the, the English Standard Version is a bit confusing. I don't always recommend this, but if you actually read the message translation, it, it's a really clear understanding of the idea of the text. That you can read that after. But if you look at the Greek, what it's essentially saying is that these groans aren't actually the Spirit's groanings. Rather, they're our groanings that the Spirit is interceding with and turning into effective prayers before the throne of God on our behalf. We are not, the Spirit is not the one groaning, we are. And He is taking our groanings, making them His, and making them prayers. Here's three reasons why scholars tell us that's the case. I'll be really brief because... I know that can feel like a jump, but here, here they are. First is the Spirit doesn't need to groan because these groanings are coming from the weakness that was just mentioned, and the Spirit doesn't have a weakness. The Spirit knows exactly what He should be praying. We don't. So we are groaning from that weakness. Second reason, if you look at verse 27, the next verse, it says, God is searching our hearts. Those groanings are in our hearts. It's our hearts that are doing the groaning. And the third reason, if you look at verse 23, which is in the section before this, it says that we who have the Spirit groan inwardly. And this 26 and 27 is a continuation of our, that thought that we are the ones groaning and the Spirit is interceding amidst those groans. 
what is this all saying? Let me just give you the, the Cliff Notes version, which is probably what you want anyway. Paul is saying, when you can't find the words to pray, because the pain is so bad, when you are in, in such agony that you can't even speak, all you can do is moan and cry and groan. The Spirit of God himself takes those sounds, those groans. And like a dad lifting up his son to the basketball hoop, the Spirit of God lifts up your prayers and turns them into effective intercession, into prayers you would be praying if you knew everything God knew. God turns your onomatopoeias into perfect pleas. I mean, honestly, what... What is a student who's been in school for like 10 years agonizing over their GPA say when they get rejected from their dream school? What do they pray? What is a single mom working a job, raising kids by herself? She has no energy and no money. What does she pray? What does a parent who lost a child pray? I have no idea what they pray. But I do know that in this text, the Spirit of God promises to help us and intercede for us when all we can do is weep. He takes those tears and makes them prayers we would pray if we knew what God knew. Robert Mount says of this passage, No passage of Scripture provides greater encouragement for prayer. The Spirit comes to the aid of believers baffled by the perplexity of prayer and takes their concerns to God with an intensity far greater than we could ever imagine. Our groans become His as He intercedes on our behalf. And doesn't this just like want to make you want to pray? Because for the Christian now, praying is like sitting at a slot machine they can't lose. Like, even if I pray for the wrong thing, the Holy Spirit of God will intercede for me and turn it into a prayer of what I actually need before God. Even if I don't even make noises, I'm just crying. He's praying for me, interceding for me, helping me, lifting me up. That's some good news for any of you who are, all you can do is weep today. Well, the Spirit can do more than weep, and He's doing it for you today. And this promise is for Christians. If you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this, the Spirit of God interceding for you is for you if you're in Christ. I want to encourage you to, to come to Him, to know Him. And if you become a Christian this morning, you get multiple intercessors in your life. You don't just get the Holy Spirit praying for you. You don't just get the church coming alongside you and helping you in your suffering. You get a Savior who lived the perfect life you could not live and died the death you deserved. And will end all suffering for you. We have multiple intercessors in the gospel. And this is some good news, man. So how do we endure suffering? The first point is we, we trust in, we weep with, we lean on the interceding spirit of God when you can't even make noises because you're in such agony from your suffering. The spirit of God is praying for you, man. Second thing, this is where, where we get into the meat of the text. How do we endure suffering? Secondly, the sovereign work of God. I want you to see three promises in these th uh, three verses. Here they are. Our bad things turn out for good, our good things are never lost, and the best things are yet to come. Let's start with number one, our bad things turn out for good. 
Man, look at this verse. This is a killer verse. If you get this, I'm telling you, it will change your life. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's break this down. Here's the promise. The promise is for Christians. Notice there's a condition to the promise. It says, for those who love God. And not just with your, your lips, like with your life. If you actually love, follow Jesus, this is your promise. If you're outside those Parameters, sorry, promise not for you. For those who love God, all things, which literally means everything, works together. It's a present active verb, meaning presently, actively, being worked together. Kind of like if someone was making you a sandwich right now, like God is making you a sandwich, like it's being worked together for good. For good. Now, what does that mean? How do you define good? Well, he tells you in the next verse, Romans 8.28, is tied to Romans 8.29. The good is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. You see in verse 29. So, in summary, here's the promise. Literally, everything in your life, Christian, good, bad, and in between, is being presently worked together into an ultimately good thing to make you more like Jesus Christ. That's the promise of Romans 8.28. Now, before I break down what that means for your life and how it's actually helpful, let me explain what it's not saying. This promise is not saying bad things won't happen to those who love God. And that is some garbage. Christians have bad things happen to them. Christians, like Adam shared last week, get cancer. Christians experience breakups. Christians get let go from their job. Christians still have to deal with Comcast customer service like everyone else. This text is inferring bad things happen to Christians. And if you're a Christian this morning, your circumstances are not going to be any different than any non-Christians when it comes to the hardships of life. Why do God's people suffer, you might ask? I thought we were His people. Why isn't He looking out for us? Well, because this world is thrown off its course by sin. There's a scientific term for this. There's a lot of scientists in the room. The term is atrophy. You ever heard of atrophy? It means everything falls apart eventually. Every person who has a six-pack right now, enjoy it while it lasts, because it's going to be gone. Tom Brady may be playing football this Sunday. He is going to retire eventually, because everything breaks down. Go to the beach. You know those little grains of sand? You know they were a mountain once? Things naturally fall apart. Atrophy. I mean, just look at me. I'm, I'm probably the only Middle Eastern man in history who has a patchy beard. I have like four chest hairs. It doesn't make any genetic sense. Things naturally don't work. They naturally fall apart. Everything is on its way towards chaos, towards decay. There's another scientific, ter- scientific term for that. It's called entropy. And so what I'm saying, this, what this verse infers is that Christians have hard life circumstances. You don't come to Christ and then get health and wealth more than anyone else. And so Christians ought to get rid of this idea that things should naturally work out for us. That things going well is normal. A lot of Christians think marriage, we should, it should never be hard. Raising kids shouldn't be hard. I should love work every Monday. I should never be sick. I should always have money. No! 
Christians have bad things happen to them. See, the Christian should be a joyful realist. A Christian says, because of sin, my life should be way worse than what it actually is. But it is God's grace giving me any good thing I experience. Like if, if my body is not in pain this morning, that is God holding it up. If, if I enjoy a good meal this morning or this afternoon, that's God's grace. If there's someone in this room to squeeze my hand today, that's God's grace. Like, do you know how sinful I am? Like, we should have all nuked each other by now. God's grace is withholding the full effects of sin. And if you really believe that, that bad things do happen to Christians, and any good thing is God's grace, then you can practice constant praise, can't you? Because things should be way worse than what they are. So the promise of this verse is not bad things won't happen to those who love God. Secondly, the promise of Romans 8.28 is not bad things aren't really bad. And this is a really key one when it comes to doing community in the Christian life. Jesus before uh, the tomb of Lazarus in John 11 is a good example of this. Uh, Adam Flint talked about this last week. Jesus in front of the tomb of Lazarus is evidence that bad things in your life whatever it is, are bad in and of themselves. And in the, before the tomb of Lazarus, you got this tragedy, right? Like Jesus' friend, Lazarus, has died. And Jesus knows what's about to happen, right? He's about to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. And so you expect Jesus to be smiling, like, <laughs> you, these guys have no clue. I'm about to smack them in the face with my glory. You, you would expect Jesus to be like, these guys all think Lazarus dying is a bad thing. But just watch. I'm about to blow their mind with how powerful I am. Is that what Jesus does? No. Jesus embraces that this is a bad thing. This is a tragedy. He's, what is he doing before the tomb of Lazarus? He's weeping. The text even says he's angry. He's mourning. His heart is troubled. Why? 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 He's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Why would Jesus be troubled? Because the bad thing that Jesus is about to work into a good is bad in and of itself. Some people look at the bad circumstances in their lives and say things or hear things like, these bad things are a blessing in disguise. And I just want to smack you in the face. Get away from me. No, they're not. Every cloud has a silver lining. Stop. You see, Jesus weeping with anger before the, the tomb of his friend is evidence that he hates death and loneliness and alienation and pain and suffering. And these things are all bad in and of themselves. But God is in the business of taking awful, horrible, no good things like death and like suffering and turning them into an eternal good. God uses sin and suffering for His good, to bring us good by overruling it, canceling its normal evil consequences, and miraculously substituting His benefits. And the supreme illustration of this truth is Jesus Christ on the cross. God took the most absolute evil Satan could devise, the slang of the perfect Son of God on a cross, 
and turned it into the greatest conceivable blessing he could offer mankind. Eternal salvation from sin. And so what I want you to see is this promise is not bad things won't happen to you if you become a Christian. And this promise is not bad things aren't really bad. They're just good things hiding under a cloud. The promise is God will take all the bad stuff in your life that's bad and work it somehow together for eternal good And what is that good to make you someone who looks as beautiful as Jesus Christ himself? So, don't wait a day. Don't wait a week. Don't wait a month. Don't wait a year. Don't wait a decade to try and be able to trace back how this bad thing becomes a good thing. The promise is that when you step on the other side of eternity... Someday you will look back and say, that evil, bad thing worked out in my favor to make me more like Jesus. Now, that might seem unrealistic. How? I love the way John Newton puts it. He says, everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that God withholds. Everything is necessary that God sends in your life. And nothing can be necessary that he withholds from your life. It's really just another way of saying what Paul is saying. That every evil, hard suffering you are facing is needed to conform you fully into the image of Jesus. And every blessing you are begging God for that he is just not giving you is not needed to conform you fully into the image of Jesus. And that's the one thing you need. God has lovingly allowed hard things in your life. Thomas Watson said it this way. He said, a sickbed often teaches more than a sermon. That's because it's easy to write notes and say amen in this service and say, yeah, suffering makes me more like Jesus. But when you're dying on the bed, you realize and you find out, is Jesus enough for me? And if you really believe this and understand this promise that our bad things turn out for good to make us like Jesus then suffering really loses every power it ever has on you like suffering can do nothing but help you in fact uh, Jonathan Edwards in his sermon Christian Happiness which is actually about suffering he says this if you understand this truth You may look down upon the whole army of worldly afflictions under your feet and you may consider with joy that however so great they are and however numerous they are, let them all join their forces together against you and put on their most dreadful and ruthless habits, forms, and appearances. Let them spend all their strength and all their vigor and all their violence attempting to do you any real hurt or mischief and it will all be in vain. You may triumph over them. All, knowing this, light afflictions, which are but for a moment, shall only work out for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And that although sorrow continue for a night, yet joy cometh in the morning. Remembering God's promise that all things surely work together for your good and nothing shall offend. Because God has allowed this, it will only make me more like him. And therefore, we can tell suffering, enter the room. 
We're not scared of you. You can do nothing but help me. As Tim Keller says, you can say, come on graves, come on crosses. The lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. The more you try and destroy me, the more you'll actually make me. Do you believe that this morning? But there's not one hardship in your life that God has not allowed to make you like Jesus. The one thing you actually need are bad things turn out for good. Second sub point about the sovereign work of God and your suffering is that our good things are never lost. You know, Romans 8.28 is often taken out of context a lot. And many people take this verse by itself and say things like, well, you know, you didn't get that job, but God has a better job for you. Or, you know, you didn't get to marry that guy or girl, but I bet God has a better one for you out there on Bumble. <laughs> the, you know, the Houston Astros won the World Series last night. Yuck. <laughs> Further evidence that sin rules this world cheaters prosper. Anyway, we're an Orioles church around here. Okay. <laughs> and my point is, Dusty Baker, the manager of the Astros, did you know that he applied to be the Philadelphia Phillies general uh, uh, manager? And they turned him down. He didn't get the job. And he was devastated. And uh, his family member, they talked about this last night when they won. His family member was like, just wait. You know, God might have something better for you. Come to find out, the Houston Astros called him a week later, and they gave him the job, and now he ended up beating the Phillies in the World Series. That's a great story, isn't it? A lot of people think that's what Romans 8.28 is saying. That's not the promise here. It's a great story. God's grace does work in that way sometimes, but that is not what this is saying. Because plenty of people never get their dream job. Plenty of people never get married. Plenty of people never win a World Series. That is not the promise. The promise is God is going to use these bad things in your life, verse 29, to turn it into a good. What is the good? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. Jesus did not suffer so that you would not suffer. Jesus suffered so that when you do suffer, you would become like him. And Paul says in verse 29 that this reality, that you will become like Jesus, is predestined. That means it's fixed, guaranteed, absolute, cannot be changed. There is nothing that can break this promise of God over your life that all suffering will make you like Him. It says here you'll be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the Greek word morphe, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. The idea is you are like a, a caterpillar in a cocoon, and one day you will come out as a butterfly, metamorphosized, looking like Jesus, and the cocoon was your pain, was your suffering. And this is fixed. It's fixed that everything in your life is allowed by God because He is molding you, sculpting you, contouring you, polishing you, shaping you into the image of His Son. He's going to make you like Jesus. He's going to give you Jesus' incredible purity. 
His incredible confidence, His incredible compassion and self-sacrifice, His incredible passion and, and wisdom. Every good thing about Jesus will one day be good in you. And all the things you face are God conforming you into that. And it's predestined, it's fixed, it's guaranteed. In fact, it's so guaranteed, if you get to the end of this section in verse 30, it says at the very end of this process, God will glorify you. But did you know that the word glorified that Paul uses describing the end of your life and as you enter into eternity is written in the past tense? You will be glorified past tense. Scholars are baffled by this. The certainty in which Paul uses here. Why would Paul say you will be glorified past tense? Something that's going to happen in the future because it is predestined. It might as well have already happened. That's how sure it is. It is absolutely bound that God is going to make you as radiant and holy and happy and as beautiful as Jesus Christ. And there's nothing in this life that will stop that. Our good things are never lost. Our glorification is certain. Last sub point. The best things are yet to come. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, Jesus writes your life story here. He says, God predestined you. What does that mean? It means that before you ever did one good thing, God says, I want her. I want him. Why? Because you're so amazing? No, because he's so loving. As a sinner, God said, I want them a part of my family. He calls you, and you can even resist the call. His grace is so sweet. And then he justified you. What does that mean? It's justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. All the wrong I did, all the good I should have done, Jesus did it for me. And I throw myself on his mercy, and he gives me his grace. That's what justification means. And then it says God will one day glorify us, that we will one day be perfectly like Christ as he is, holy, radiant, Sinless. And Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 2, that what, no, what no eye has seen, what no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Namely, you're going to be more glorious than you ever realized, and God is going to be way more glorious than you can even imagine. Our best things are yet to come, and you can handle suffering if you know that to be true. You ever watch a, a game, like a sporting event on ESPN Classic? One thing I noticed about myself, when I watch like basketball or football on ESPN Classic, I'm never stressed out. Why? Because you know the ending. When you watch the Ravens game tomorrow night, and we're down by 14 points, hopefully not, you're going to be panicking a little bit. We might lose. But if you watch that game on ESPN Classic, we might be down 10 at halftime, but I'm laughing. Because I know the ending. I know we win. You can endure suffering. You can endure, endure a deficit at halftime when you know the ending. That the best things are yet to come. How do you endure suffering? The interceding spirit of God who groans with us in our pain and turns it into effective prayers. The sovereign work of God, that our bad things turn out to good, for good, make us more like Jesus. Our good things are never lost. It's fixed. It's predestined we'll become like Him. And the best things are yet to come. Our glorification is as certain 
as watching the 2000 Super Bowl on ESPN Classic. Um, as we close on this, I, I just want to put some flesh around this and just share some suffering that I've been through, my family's been through. Uh, my mom, about six years ago, was diagnosed with uh, early onset Alzheimer's. Uh, Alzheimer's is a disease that slowly shrinks your brain until you lose long-term memory, short-term memory, and you become a vegetable and die. And uh, it's, it's, it was particularly cruel for my, for my mom because she was like the peak example of physical fitness. She ran marathons. She taught two spin classes a day. You know, I, <laughs> I spent so much time in like the kids club at the gym growing up because she was always working out. And so she had like peak physical fitness, but her brain was broken. And the doctors told us about six years ago that it's going to aggressively continue. Her brain will shrink, and she may die within six years, not have memories within two years. And obviously that was devastating for our family. Well, uh, about six years ago, um, I was graduating from seminary in Raleigh, North Carolina, and my mom came down to celebrate the ceremony with me, and, and she had just found out about the seriousness of the diagnosis. And it's really hard to, like, celebrate graduations and, and you know, just act like everything's normal when you know mom's going to die soon. Or she might not die, but she might, she's not going to have any cognizance of what's going on. I mean, I really think Alzheimer's is the worst way a human being can die. And so... We go to the graduation ceremony, and then after we, afterwards we get lunch, and we're just trying to act normal. And as as we pay for the bill and leave, uh, everyone's walked out. My my family's walked out, and my mom just like won't leave the restaurant. Almost like she doesn't want to leave. And she grabs me and stops me, as everyone has already walked out, and she looks me in the eye. And um, this is probably one of the hardest moments of my life, man. She looks me in the eye and says, um, Adam, I don't want to die. I really don't want to die. And um, she starts crying, and I start crying. And she puts her head in, in my chest. And, 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 and I've never seen my mom like this, man. Like, son, I don't want to die. I, like, I, I want to be a grandma. And um, I, I didn't know what to say. I just graduated seminary. I didn't know what to say. What do you say to someone whose brain is shrinking? Who knows at any moment they could lose cognizance, memories. But what am I going to tell her? Am I going to tell her that... Bad things don't happen to Christians. No, oh, she's a Christian. She loves God. Am I going to tell her that this bad thing isn't really bad, Mom? There's, there's a silver lining in the clouds here. Her brain is shrinking. She's dying. 
There is no silver lining. I told her, and I can tell her, Mom, let's rely on the sovereign work of God. This evil, Jesus is weeping with us because sin caused this. And somehow, he's going to take this evil and conform us into people who look more like Jesus in such a way that we will look back on the other side of eternity and say, that worked out well for me. And I can tell her that even when her brain is mush, like it is right now, that when she, when all she can do is moan and lay on a bed and make sounds and groan, that the interceding Spirit of God takes those groans to the throne of God like a dad lifting up a son to a basketball hoop and turns those groans into prayers for exactly what she needs, and God answers. I don't know what suffering you're going through, but I know the sovereign work of God is good news for your life, and I know the interceding Spirit of God will be there in your pain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we declare we are not afraid of suffering. Disease can come, persecution, disappointment, betrayal, physical affliction, Alzheimer's. Let it come, God. We are not afraid because it has no power over us. We welcome it because the more it tries to destroy us, the more it will make us. The lower it tries to lay us, the more it will raise us higher into Christ-likeness. Lord, help us to face our suffering. Look it in the eye and say, do your worst. Because you tried at the cross of Golgotha and it only turned into my salvation. I pray for the suffering saint here this morning. Lord, help them to have renewed strength and vigor as they face the pain they face. I pray for this church that we would come alongside suffering hurting people, and point them to the beautiful promises of God that may not fix their problem, but can give them joy and hope amidst their problems. And I pray for anyone this morning, God, who is not in Christ. These promises are not for them. I pray that they would come to know this Jesus who oversees and triumphs over all evil and all suffering. They would come to Him, know Him, and receive these promises for their life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast.